listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Changing Reality. We're thrilled to have you back with us again on this lovely Thursday. So welcome all, welcome. And for all of you who may be tuning into Changing Reality for the first time, Changing Reality is a show on WQHS radio that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are in essence changing their own reality. So we'll be hanging out and interviewing social change makers, entrepreneurs, top executives, thought leaders, to even business owners, artists, musicians, and inspiring individuals from all across the board and all across the world as well. So by hearing these inspiring stories on how they change the world around them, hopefully it will give us some inspiration, how we can take those little nuggets of wisdom and change the things that we want to in our own uh, stories too. And I'm someone who truly believes in the power of sharing these experiences, sharing these stories. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are so many people out there who are making waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm just passionate about uncovering those hidden gems so that as we learn from their experiences, we can build on it and continue to grow for a better, brighter future. Personally, I founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance in Malaysia, which is where I'm from. And it collaborates with global organizations, even the Malaysian Ministry of Education, to help provide alternative education platforms for any student who wants to change their own reality. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities and projects that help them discover their passion, learn about the world around them, and use that experience, those information that they get from these hands-on projects to start their own careers while they are still in school. And the core of this, the core of all that we do is stories. So to date, through the power of these stories, through enabling them to have these hands-on experiences, we've been able to impact over 15,000 students in 970 communities across seven countries with another 50,000 students joining us actually um, this weekend with our new age learner conference for young Gen Zs from across the globe community. So if you have any questions about it, do drop it in the chat below. If you guys have any suggestions of stories that you want to uncover, of topics that you want to talk about, let us know as well, and we'll see how we can add that to our show. Today's speaker is someone who, personally, if you're watching, you are in for a really, really amazing conversation. Um, his journey is one of the most inspiring that I've personally heard. And as someone with over 20 years of experience in the marketing communications industry, he is definitely a thought leader that you have to listen to. With the passion for nurturing and inspiring teams, growing businesses, developing trusted relationships with clients, he knows not only how to bring together the best in the PR agency world, but at the same time has a global position where he works cross continents to actually um, bring those marketing solutions to his beloved clients. Our speaker today is the Global Chief Growth Officer at Virtue, a vice media group company in New York, and has been recognized and named by prominent um, awarding bodies from across the globe, including Financial Times um, uh, and Yahoo Finance's uh, Top 100 Ethnic Minority Executive Leaders. And he's been receiving awards like this for several consecutive years. Without further ado, let's bring onto our screen with us the amazing human being who will definitely inspire us all, welcoming Mr. Suresh Raj. Hello, Harsha. Sorry, I was on mute. 
Uh, that was an amazing introduction. Thank you so much. I hope I can do it justice. Thank you so much for joining us. How's the weather in New York? How are you doing today? <laughs> <laughs> We're just entering autumn, so it's like my favorite season of the year. Uh, so it's lovely. It's absolutely lovely. And I also have my dog with me. So just in case he barks, that's the audience that I have here. So oh, apologies. No, that's terrible. If he barks, the cuteness <laughs> will steal the show. And then <laughs> yeah, exactly. The going to like pay attention to us. So... <laughs> Like bring in the adorableness. Like we'll we'll get to that like later. We've got time. <laughs> but thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Um, one thing I didn't mention in your introduction, which is a major spoiler, um, for and probably will um, I don't know. Uh, you may or may not want the audience to know this, but we share the same hometown. We are both mm. from from Malaysia. So when as someone who was from the same place as you are, um, and seeing the amazing journey that you've had, as I mentioned, it's incredibly inspiring. And you've gone on to be a literal rock star in the whole PR agency. I'm not joking. I think you even nominated for a rock star award once. So. <laughs> yes, I was. Embarrassingly, yes. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a pretty good award to win. So, like, I have to ask in a way. Did you know that your life would turn out from this when you were just a boy in Fluang? Was this the oh, grand plan? Was this wow. the vision? Or was this something that you stumbled across? Oh, wow. Um, no, I had no, I had no inkling that this was going to be my life today. In fact, my sister lives here as well in the US uh, and her kids are American. And we often literally, you know, we come from this tiny little small town called Kluang back in Johor. And never in a million years, never in a million years did I think this is where my life would end up. And I, you know, I literally saw it as someone who would just be, you know, brought up in Malaysia and that was going to be my home. And I had, I was very lucky and, you know, was very blessed and got an opportunity to go and pursue my education in the UK. And that was the turning point. Um, and it was, it was, I embraced it. Um, and I had no inkling that I'd end up in the U.S. after over 21 years in, in the U.K. Uh, the option came up and I literally grabbed it with both hands and came here. I've been here now for seven years. So coming up to seven years uh, in New York and this is now home. And, and it's no, n literally I had, if I'm being honest, I was I didn't even quite have a life plan because I was going through lots as an individual growing up in Kluang and, you know, I'll be very transparent about this. And you know how in, in, in Malaysia uh, culture, one of the things that's important culture is, you know, parents being together and family, etc. And my parents separated. Uh, my parents got a divorce um, and which was very, very rare, particularly in the period of time that I grew up in, in Malaysia. Um, and and so, like, I had to learn a whole new life. Like, you know, I was of mixed parentage. I'm half Malay, half Indian. And I had to embrace religion and culture and family separation, which was taboo in society at that point. And then just realize I had to embrace life and find a whole new definition of what my journey was going to be. And I think that was the secret, being able open to embracing whatever was going to come and making the best out of that. Amazing. We are already off to a very deep start. You're going to make me tear before I ever even ask <laughs> question. So I'm, I'm sure you've got that plan. But anyway, <laughs> you you mentioned that there was 
this time or this somewhat of a turning point in that initial stages where you went and you studied overseas in the UK. If I'm not mistaken, you went to uh, Middlesex University, you um, did a BA in, if I'm not mistaken, called, um, media or something along that range. Yeah. And um, many people go overseas, many people study abroad, they get a job abroad. They don't end up as amazing and crazily successful as you. Some of them come back, they do well here. Tell us about your time there, like going there in a new country, um, again, from a very small town, and then now being thrown into um, London, a beautiful place, an extremely exciting place for all of us who've only seen it on the telly before. So how was that ex initial like experience was, like for you? And what was kind of like the mindset you had going in and how did that change over your years studying there? Very good question. And I think for me, the, if you know, I, I talk about uh, just feeling very different and, and quite unaccepted, actually, in a way, growing up in, in, in Malaysia, and I don't know whether this is controversial, uh, but we, you know, my family went through a lot of religious persecution in Malaysia. So we were born into a Muslim family who converted to Christianity, um, and it was obviously as you can appreciate in Malaysia, a Muslim country, and my mother was Malay, was supposed to be Muslims, and we, we became Christians. Uh, there was a lot of persecution and trial and tribulation. And that in, a, in addition, also in that generation, being of mixed marriage was also culturally problematic because both sides of the family didn't quite accept. And so we as the kids were always seen as almost like, mm, not pure, All right? And, and I think just growing up in that context, and I was going through my own personal struggles as an individual identifying who I was and understanding my place in this world. Um, and so when the opportunity came and I, you know, I literally landed, I remember I had a dark blue plastic suitcase, which I dragged on two wheels and I had a, 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 a small hand luggage. Um, and when I arrived at Heathrow in London, I remember this is my moment. Like I'm going to embrace it because it was a charm. My story rewrite my history and and there was a part of me that was incredibly nervous because i didn't know anything i arrived on my own i didn't know anyone but and in fact interesting story so when i actually arrived at the university i was the very first student to arrive on campus it's trent park in north london um very first student to arrive on campus um and this was 1994 september um, and I was the only person on campus for about two days. Literally, the only other people around were security guards, and it's a very big campus, so you didn't see anyone. Uh, but also what I later found out was that campus, which is a beautiful, beautiful campus north of London, and, and beautiful, it was a old mansion that belonged to Lord Byron, who was a famous poet oh. laureate, okay. converted to the converted to university, and the dorms, etc., were there. Um, and this beautiful landscape gardens, and and when whenever it is not um, academic years, they would rent out the place. So one day I went, I just walked around the campus, and I sat down, uh, and I saw two huge limousines right in front of the like you know beautiful stretch limousines in front of the mansion, and I just sat there and wondering, oh that's a bit curious, like there are no students, um, and about twenty minutes later. The Hollywood actors and actresses Goldie Horn and Richard Gere walk in front of me. <laughs> Literally, get into the uh, get in, and of course they're both. This is like your first week in this London. Is my, my, this is my first three days in London, and literally they're both looking at me a bit 
odd because what's this Asian guy doing sitting on a bench right in front of our cars? Um, anyway, I didn't say anything. I'm just like gobsmacked seeing them, right? And they go into their cars and it turns out that the guy that comes up after that was the Dalai Lama. So the Dalai Lama was giving, as you know, Goldie Hawn and, 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 and Richard Gere, Buddhists, uh, and the Dalai Lama was basically doing like private um, sessions and lectures, etc. And they happened to do it in Bevan Hall, which is one of the halls on the campus, because it's set in this beautiful grounds with a big Japanese garden in the back. It's all beautifully, beautifully set. And it's so far away from central London, so it's very private, except they didn't ex anticipate to see this young Malaysian kid. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> this young Malaysian kid. So that was my first experience of London. I'm thinking, God, this is so surreal. No one will believe this moment. But for me, I think what I was so ready for was to see a different world, because I grew up in, in, in an environment up to this point there where you grew up in a prescriptive mold, right? Like, this is your culture. You should be doing this. These are your, the, 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 your, your plan, life plans, and et cetera. And one thing I realized was, you know, and I not, not necessarily, like, I didn't defy my parents, but I justified to my parents that I wasn't cut out to be an accountant, lawyer, a doctor, or, or, or an engineer. Those were like the four paths for me, right? And growing up in, in an Asian culture, and I went, well, I wanted more. I wanted something that I was passionate in. Um, and I had a br brief and brush with uh, experience in the music industry. And I, one thing I realized was actually I love the media side of things. And I, you know, there's something intriguing about that. And I'd love to do it. And my parents were always said to me, what are you going to do? Be a journalist? And I went, maybe, maybe I'll go around the world. Tra I love the idea of traveling, seeing different cultures. And I wanted to embrace that. So the, the good thing my parent allowed me to do is pursue that passion. So that's when I did media and cultural studies as my media and cultural studies as my, as my first degree. And what I was ready for was to embrace new cultures, new people who had a different mindset about what being be, being yourself meant. And and that was one thing I loved and experienced when I was in, in London, was the openness to literally just be myself. You know, I'm, there's two things that I've got to address. I mean, the first part is that, that whole, like, being ready for a new culture, being ready for a new adventure in a sense. And I feel like, um, especially as someone who, who you grow up watching all these TV shows set in, like, um, New York or London. And I remember that as a kid, I used to tell my mom that, I, or I used to tell my kindergarten teacher that I was English because I watched too much Downton Abbey in kindergarten and my kindergarten teacher had to call my mom. So it was like, I, I, I can completely relate to kind of, like, that experience of, like, be like have like wanting to go to a place and like like having a new life in a way in a sense and i think that that, that your story is incredibly amazing the second part i've got to address is the dalai lama part and the richard gale part because that is absolutely insane and i normally the normal advice i hear from people is that don't expect to go like to, on the streets of new york and run into like with celebrities but you have obviously uh <laughs> yeah. all expectation and uh, you are the i would say the exact expectation or like the kind of like the opposite of every story that I've heard about moving across. So amazing, amazing uh, experience. You mentioned also about this kind of like brush with being a musician. You, I read somewhere that after, in a way, your first day uh, out of college, uh, when you graduated, you actually went for this audition by MTV. And what's even more crazier is you actually got accepted. You were one out of, I think, five people who were accepted to be put into this band by MTV and toured around the country in a sense. Mm -hmm. How do these impossible things happen to you? I, I think that's the first question <laughs> ask. And no, I'm, I'm serious. Please answer that. And I think the second thing is tell us a bit about that story. I mean, it's something that we all dream of. Did it all pan yeah. out like you expected it to? Like, were you living like 
keep it up with the Kardashians? Or oh, God, up? totally, totally not the Kardashians, but it was certainly, um, you know, we all talk about having 15 minutes of fame in our lifetime. And I, I think that was my 15 minutes. It was a little more than 15 minutes, two years. But um, so before I left Malaysia, I was in a in a in a um, rock band actually it's a christian rock band called josh race i was a very religious kid uh but i also loved and embraced music and you know my brother sister and me are very passionate about music uh we're all musicians um and whilst at my first year of uh pre-university in kl i joined this amazing christian rock band called josh race um you know from being the back back backing uh vocalist on it i ended up becoming a lead vocalist in the band did a lot of songwriting. Uh, actually, recorded a number of my own tracks with the brand, the band, and you know, and and went around the country performing. And I loved it. Uh, I didn't just love uh, the whole performance side of it. I love the songwriting side side of it. I love the craft of it. But of course, again, one of the biggest challenges being brought up in a very at that point very still very Asian culture. You know, we I grew up in a period where there was no social media. There's no embracing foreign culture in that way. What you saw in TV was what was known as popular culture, and at that point as well, it was incredibly censored, right? So, for me, I only knew the experience I had. Um, but I knew my passion for music. And, and so when I came over to the UK, um, I was walking around all the time singing. Like, I, I love, it was just me, right? I'd walk around the halls of residence, I'd just be singing, singing, singing. And my first brush with music was one of the girls, and I'll never forget her name, Susan Blackwell, and she was living in one of the, one of the rooms further down the hall in London in the dormitories. Um, and she slipped under my uh, my dorm door a live audition, an in-person audition for a West End musical in London called Miss Saigon. And I don't know how familiar you are with it with Miss Saigon. I'd never been to a musical. Didn't, at this point, I didn't know what a musical was. Um, and so I, you know, I go, I literally looked at it and thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll go and do it because, you know, and maybe this was the, this side of my naivety. Like I've not been so influenced by life that I was I was actually looking at it in a very negative way. Everything was glass half full. Everything was positive. Everything was, hey, it's an opportunity. Do it. Go do it. Go embrace it. So I turn up in this West End um, theatre two days later. Literally didn't know the song. So overnight had to learn a very big song. It was for the supporting lead role for, for the musical. And I turn up and, you know, like, and it's so funny because, like, I have zero experience. All I know was I loved to sing. I loved, loved, loved to sing. And I turn up in, in, in Drury Lane, which is the theatre in central London. And um, by the way, if I'm going completely off tangent, please pull me back. But I'm just going to tell you the story. So I get into uh, the theatre and there's like a massive queue of people. I'm like the fifth or sixth person there, but there's a massive queue of people queuing up. And I looked around and went, oh my God, these are actual professionals. Like they are all doing their warm up voice, vocal lessons and stretching and like doing the splits and everything. I'm like, hey, this kid that just got off the boat about a month and a half ago uh, here in Drury Lane thinking I can sing. And I, you know, I'd love to sing. And I, so I, <laughs> and it's so funny because everybody's bringing up like this full like a4 size headshots of them professional pictures etc and like their their cvs of all the shows they've been on and and i've got like zero nothing i had christian rock band in malaysia just arrived in england a month and a half ago and here i am 
in this audition. And they, they looked at me and they goes, okay, are you a member of equity? Which is like equity is a, um, like a, like a union for, uh, for stage actors, etc. cetera. Uh, and I went, no, I didn't know what equity was. And he goes, well, do you have a headshot? I went, yes. And I pulled out my passport photograph from Malaysia. So actually I gave them this passport and they're looking at me going, is he being serious? Like I went, yeah, that's all I have. I don't have a headshot. So I gave them my passport photograph. Anyway, I'm sitting down waiting to be called in for this audition by Sir Cameron McIntosh. Uh, and again, I don't know anything, right? So I don't know the context of what a musical is. I don't know anything about these people. Uh, I'm just going there because I love it. I love the idea of being able to sing for my career. And um, I suddenly looked around me and thought, oh my God, what am I doing here? These people are real professionals. I'm a joke. Like I should just get up and leave. So I, I literally get up and I'm about to walk out and the door opens and the casting agent basically says, Suresh, you're next. And I went, oh, I'm here, I need to go in. So I get pulled into the theater. So I'm walking inside this West End theater, which is massively huge. Uh, and the, there's, the only lights are on the engineer's desk where the mixing is happen and happening and there are the people there. And I, I later found out one of them was Sir Cameron McIntosh sitting there. And then the spotlight on stage with the pianist. There's just one spotlight on stage. And this is a, a theater that, I don't know, they probably fit 800, 1,000 people. It's a typical London West End theater. So I go in there and bearing in mind, I just learned the song the night before, memorized the entire song. So I get up there and I say, I'm gonna sing this called Buidoi, which is one of the signature songs in, in the musical. It's for the role I was trying to audition for. Um, and he starts playing and I start singing. I remember the first two lines of the song and I don't remember anything else. So I made up the entire lyrics for the three and a half minutes, however long the song goes on for four minutes. I literally didn't skip a beat. I literally just made up all the words. There was a lot of rain. I have no idea. Every time you don't know lyrics, rain appears to be the lyrics. Um, and I make up this entire song and I remember thinking, all I remember thinking is, don't give up, just keep singing. And, and that's what I told myself. And so um, the song finishes and this pianist gives me back the score, the music score. And I remember thinking, oh my God, that was so embarrassing. I got everything wrong. So I just went, you know, I'm gonna put a paper back over my head and just walk straight out. So I'm walking down the steps and then literally this guy comes running. He goes, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, comes running down he goes, that was amazing. That was just amazing. You have such a raw voice. And he goes, like, where did you train? I went, in my bathroom. I like, you know, and he goes, You've never done this before? I went, No, this is completely the first time. And he goes, You've got the role. I want you in this role. We need you to start on Wednesday for your training. Uh, like, you know, you have to come in the evenings, et cetera, to do all the rehearsals. Um, and and he goes, That was me. And it turned out to be Sir Cameron McIntosh. Uh, and and I and I'm like, was he paying attention at all? Did he listen to anything I was doing? And anyway, I start walking out and the, the, the casting agent comes after me and says, and don't forget, please bring your paperwork, etc. Um, long story short, I had to turn down the role because like I was there on a student visa and I couldn't just swap over to do Western musicals. But what it did spark on me was I knew I had something to give in the music industry. I had a talent that I thought was just something in my head. And I realized actually there was something when somebody as professional like this says that you, that calls me out and says, you have something here. 
So I tried to negotiate my parents. I'd like to do music. And they went, we sent you there to do education. You do education. So, you know, I thought I told myself, okay, I will do what my parents want me to do. So I ditched the, the whole West End experience uh, and focused on getting my degree. And I was also a very studious kid. And, you know, I loved doing well in my education. So I really excelled in school. And the very next day after graduating, I did everything, right? So I did everything by the book. I graduated. The very next day, I saw an, a live open audition for MTV, putting a boy band together. And I went, that's my moment. So I didn't tell anyone, didn't tell my parents. I literally went and auditioned for this boy band. And it was basically the very first pan-European reality TV show in the music industry. You think about the X Factors, the Fame Academies, the American Idols, and you know Britain's Got Talent, all of that. This was the very first show ever in the history of live audition and, and music shows. Um, and they basically auditioned guys all over Berlin, uh, somewhere in Sweden, I think Oslo, I think in Sweden, and London, to put a pan-European boy band together. Uh, and I didn't even have a TV at home. I didn't have an M I didn't have MTV. So when I auditioned, all I knew was the audition. And then I went back home and they said, we'll be in touch. And, you know, weeks went by and I didn't hear anything. So I just forgot it. Um, and then I get a call um, from uh, one of the, the, the uh, DJs and said, look, we're going to call you tomorrow because we're announcing the results of the boy band. And like I had forgotten this one month later and I went, I completely forgot about that show because I, I just auditioned, I was filmed uh, and that was it. Uh, and it turns out the next day they announced on this call that I'm the first of the five guys that won a place in this boy band. Uh, and the reason it took a month is because it was a live television show where people were voting in to keep the boy band members. So they just played the auditions and people were voting, the executive producers were voting and I was one of the five guys. And then they launched us on a global stage and in, in this, a concert in Germany called Popcom in Cologne in Germany. And I remember the moment, this was the moment that really redefined my life, I think, because I was, um, you know, I was sharing a dressing room with uh, Robbie Williams from Take That and the Spice Girls that already received, they already had two number one hits at this point. Um, a number of like Boyzone, all very British groups. Uh, and I remember thinking, my God, I'm a little kid from Kluang in Malaysia that nobody knows about and this, like, this is so unreal. Um, but I think it was the first time both my parents realized he probably has a bit of talent. Like, for him to have done this, he has a talent. And, and they gave me the chance to just pursue this for a few years. So so that's where my brush with music came. And, and what was difficult was actually sustaining it. Because the one thing of the music industry, it's a tough industry. Um, and it takes you a long time to really crack it. And so whilst I was doing music, I also struggled in terms of I didn't have a financial income. So whilst I was on TV doing shows, etc., I was also washing dishes in a Greek restaurant just to make ends meet and, you know, and to to put food on the table, which was tough. Um, yeah, so that was my experience in the music industry. Absolutely brilliant. And I have to ask this. I know I asked it earlier, but I'll reiterate this. Many people have talent. Many people have um, passion, but not everyone gets to where you got. Like even just like getting accepted into that audition, even just like making people run off after you when you walk down the stage in a West End musical audition, or even I would I would argue as far as running into the Dalai Lama or Richard Gere, these things don't just happen. And I know some people are believers in luck, and I believe to an extent in luck as well. 
But one thing that I, that's always stuck to me is luck. And my mentor used to say this is opportunity meets preparation. And I think that that's something that, that for me always struck. And I have to ask in a sense, with, it's, it's unlikely that so many good things happen to you without you doing anything extraordinary in order to attract them or at least utilize them. What was it about you that enabled you to use your talent, that enabled you to push through and actually achieve these successes? I think two things, belief and belief in myself um, and discipline, if I'm being honest, actually. The, those are, if I were to say those two things, and they still are my, my mantra, uh, belief and discipline. So I don't believe anything is impossible. I think there are many challenges in life, right? Multiple challenges, and we all face them in different shapes, sizes, guises, and, and, and all. But... If you have a if you have a fixed belief on focusing on um, what you want to achieve, what you want out of life, nothing should really stop you, whatever your circumstance. So you know, today my career took a massive pivot from being in the music industry into the marketing communications industry, um, and I've loved it. I've embraced it because you know this was this was going to be my fallback career, but it wasn't a fallback career in terms of oh, well, if I really don't make it, I'm going to do this. I went, well, there were, you know, I had, I had a, to the point of discipline, I had a plan in that way. And my plan was if I could pursue my music, fantastic. If I can't pursue, this is what I'd like to do. And I, I had op, 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 option number two. But, but whatever the path is, you need to have discipline. You can't just go and assume things will fall into your lap and make things happen. You've got to put in the effort. You've got to put in the work. So yes, whilst time with the, the, the music experience was fantastic, it was grueling. The hours were difficult, the, you know, and you were always at someone's beck and call. You didn't have a life of your own. You were controlled by the, by the management company, by the recording label, by the stage people, etc. You literally went where they pointed you. Um, at the same time, in terms of career, um, like, you know, my day starts at 4.45 in the morning. My calls end at, about, you know, 9, 10 at night every day. Um, yes, that's not necessarily a healthy work-life balance, but it, at a certain level, when, when, you, when you're pushing for, uh, for growth in your career, it takes a lot of discipline. And, and uh, for me, I think the combination of having faith and belief in yourself in the environment that you are to make things happen is one thing. Being disciplined helps make those realities happen, I think. Absolutely amazing. And I think you've spelled out the formula in the name of the show of how you change reality. Very, very simply put. And I'm so glad that we that this conversation actually can be heard by many people who may be in that position or maybe aspiring to achieve maybe a fraction of the success in one of the many careers that you've had in you mentioned you pivot as well, like like I like that part about my pivoting from music to the whole communications industry. I see the connection a little bit, but what was the moment that you realized that okay, like or in a sense when you decided, all right, I'm not going to do this anymore. How did you know that this industry was the next thing for you? Was it just like a step revealed itself? You know, when the student is ready, the next thing appears, or did it literally, or did you just one day I don't know walk into like. Some, um, event and saw a flyer for communications and like interview and say, oh, I'm going to try that instead. <laughs> Um, actually, it was it was very related to the music industry. Um, so when I was part of the boy band and I went on to be, have a solo career with uh, a few record labels myself in in London, um, I was very um, 
being in the music industry, you're always thrown into um, into the media, right? So you have to do interviews, you have to speak to them, you have to go for your 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 you know they they write on the music and the band and what's happening, etc. So I I started to see as a band member, as one of the boy band members, I used to see God, that's actually a really interesting career as well. So the journalists that come interview us, and I went. Wow, I actually quite like that part about being in the media, right? And I didn't know at this point I had no experience in communications. I just remember thinking, well, that's actually quite a fun career as well. So that's that's my, you know, because people always say you are you either a left brain or right brain. I think I'm a combination of both, right? So I've got a creative side of me, which is the music, the songwriting, the arts, uh, but I also have a very methodical uh, sort of uh, I can't remember is it left or right that is creative, and, and the other one is much more methodical. Amalgamation of both, like most geniuses yeah. are. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure about genius, but I feel like I have a, I've, I've got a balance of both, and and the and the theoretical and methodical side of me went well, you know, if that would be my fallback career, I kind of like what happening in this whole meeting with the journalists and I didn't know I didn't have a name or a definition for it because I didn't understand that career but I what played to it was I all obviously had a grounding in it because I'd done my degree in media and cultural studies so there was an element of media in there that was involved um, and so when 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 I got personally quite disillusioned with the music industry uh, and I think as we briefly chatted a bit a bit before um, I was basically uh, being made use of within the music industry. So, and it was very difficult. I was an Asian artist trying to break mainstream music and it would, it would not, um, it was very difficult to do so because, you know, very few Asian artists broke mainstream. And I'm going back to 1990 something, right? So mid nineties, which never really happened. Um, and so they would always, you know, the songwriters would write songs and say, okay, but, you know, we'll focus Suresh in the Asian community of Britain or Asian community across Europe. And like, and although I sang English songs, all my songs had, had like, you know, uh, an Asian type influence to the music. So the main pop songs, but they had Asian instruments, etc. I couldn't just be Suresh who sang pop songs. Like it was Suresh, the Asian artist. And I mean, and that was very frustrating. And then one day when I found out, like, you know, I was being managed by quite a, quite a number of famous people in the UK, uh, but I never saw a cent out of it. Never saw any money from it. Uh, and I was getting tired about being sort of used in that way. And that was the moment when this isn't the career for me. Two years in and I can't even afford a meal. Uh, like, you know, that would that was a problem. And I thought, well, what do I know? What do I do? What skill set do I have? And I remember thinking, I love the media side of it. I loved communications. Um, and I had deferred a place to do my MBA. So I went, you know what? I'm going to go back, do my MBA, get focused, get a business. And part of me, will, well, I thought what would be really strong is that if I came out with beyond just a media and communications degree or cultural studies degree, but I also combined it with a business aptitude with being having an MBA, so I had both a BA honors and an MBA. And when I came, when when I sort of did the course, and again, to my point earlier, I was very studious. I loved doing well in whatever I did, being the focus and the sort of um, belief in the discipline, right? Focus, belief, and discipline. I excelled at my MBA, and during the MBA, there was an internship that that cropped up with a PR agency in London. I went, I'll just go and apply and do it. I'm going to go apply again, just believing in myself. That I want to go improve myself. Uh, and I did. I did the interview and there was a brilliant opportunity for me to start as an intern. And, and, and I took it. And when I did start my career in, in PR, I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is so much fun. 
because I got to become the PR person that brings the journalist and the, you know, whatever the brand or the celebrity, et cetera, together and create a great story. And I loved what I realized is I love the art of storytelling. I love the craft of storytelling. Uh, and because I believe like, you know, telling the right stories, you actually get to the title of the show, you get to change a lot of realities. Um, and like today, this is a this is storytelling between you and me, Harsho. We are storytelling and trying to actually shape a, a narrative and also tell the story of what actually happened in an individual's life that can hopefully change the reality of other people, right? So for me, I love I love that aspect of, of what communications really allowed me to become and do. And so I literally excelled at being um, uh, a media relations, that's what I did most of all. It was literally telling stories of brands and people in the media. Absolutely brilliant. And you mentioned you got this internship with a PR company. It was one of the biggest uh, PR companies in the UK, Consolidated PR. And uh, as we were chatting earlier and you mentioned this, you actually started off with this internship and that internship springboarded a 10 year long career in this company. So you definitely yep. did something outstanding during that internship, if I may say, <laughs> in order to kind of like set that stage for success. And it, again, it wasn't just like a random ABC company, huge name, huge clientele. So for you, like from your point of view, what do you think you did differently in that role? And how did you actually come about it? Did your experience being a musician prior to that help you in any way in the way that you thought? I mean, a lot of people, they straight away go for internships right out of college. A lot of them, they work all their life and they, they try in that corporate world to kind of level up. You went out there, did music, did an MBA, had a very unconventional path and yet came in and rocked this internship and springboarded your career. How did that happen in a sense? So going back to the two pillars that I believe in, which is belief in self and discipline, um, the one thing that really stood out for me in the music industry was the fact that I had to just be brave, right? So I remember the first concert we were thrown into as a boy band with these five guys, you know, two guys from England, one guy from Berlin, one guy from Sweden and myself. Uh, we were just in front of thousands of people, right? So in Cologne, I think there were about five or 10,000 people, a crowd that we're performing on the stage. And it was telecast to 35 million people live on MTV, this show. And that was my very first concert with the boy band. And then we subsequently did a lot of gigs and stuff all over the world. There was no such thing as actually not being brave because you're constantly meeting people. You have to throw yourself and you have to be this live animated person and i realized uh, and this is where my 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 history in music so back in malaysia when i was part of the band uh, although it's a very christian band we performed in religious sort of um, organizations or, or places um it gave me a sense of being brave like i have to embrace it and i if, if this is the career and the, the passion i have is music was to entertain you don't sit down in a shower and sing to yourself yes i do that these days but you are out there and performing and you have to be vulnerable to be able to take criticism because not everybody's going to like your music some people like some people hate it and you know being able to be brave that way and i remember when i started at the pr agency there were about maybe about 80 of us uh, when i started um and I remember the first meeting, so every Monday, the whole company comes together, stands around the main sort of room, and they share great news from the company, et cetera. And I looked around the room thinking, I was the only person who was non-white in this company, right? I was the very first non-white employee in this business, and everybody around me was white. And if you remember, this is an 
I'm an intern, first day in my career, in a in an agency in London, surrounded by all white people. And there were two options: I can be scared completely and shut down, or I said, "This is my moment to stand out." So I chose the moment to stand out. And I told myself, I'm going to excel at everything I do so that, like, you know, I want to be the next person who shares during the Monday morning meeting about this great piece of coverage that I spoke to journalists about and helped achieve, et cetera. Uh, and I think that sense of belief and bravery just pushed me into being much more prominent, um, not prominent in a look at me, show me sort of way, but, and, and this is where I think is really, and I think, and I say this because I come from that part of the world, being Asian, um, there's, an, there's an innate aptitude to work hard because it's drilled into us by our family and our parents, study, do well, you know, focus and deliver. Uh, and I always had that in me. So I always wanted to study, do well, focus and deliver. And in my that, that aptitude I also took into my career, I wanted to actually deliver a good job, which meant it was not about I wanted to be in the limelight. I focused on being the best that I could to deliver the best work I could. And the one thing that maybe was the wind beneath my wings was the fact that my work spoke for myself, spoke for me, right? So I delivered great work and the delivery of great work just pulled me out from behind the ranks to front of the ranks. And so people say, actually, if you need a great media relations person, let's fly Suresh and get Suresh on this account. So I was always pulled into troubleshoot on different accounts that needed help to drive media coverage. Um, and that that literally started to propel me much more front facing uh, within the business. And I think that was one of the reasons um, my career really took off there. And after about five years of doing pure PR, I actually turned to what I call the dark arts of business development because I love to speak to new clients. And that's the music side of it, right? You have to be brave. You go out and you approach people and you, you embrace whether they like you or you don't. You, you, have, you need to know the art of crafting relationships and connections. Uh, and that is where the music side of it really played a lot of business because I wasn't afraid to be on stage and connect and, and in a room, go around, mingle with the journalists, mingle with people. Um, and so I took that art to actually working as leading business development. And, and that has been my career um, for the last sort of 20 something years so in a way you could take the musician out of the stage but you could not take the stage of the musician and i think that that's 100 um and i feel like like many times we look down on the skills that the arts can teach us but i feel like you just showed us and maybe it's just the asian in me who's been hearing too many people say that but i think you broke anyone who has that perception and that i feel like you are a perfect example that the things that we learn from music, from the arts, from mm -hmm. theater, those skills build us and help us excel in everything that we do. And I think that, 100%. You, know, that, that you, you painted it very beautifully. And there's so many amazing things that you've done, so many awards, um, again, nominated for Rockstar Award that itself should be kind of like telling. That, and over a 20-year long career, I'm sure you've worked on so many interesting, fascinating projects. Some of the firms that you uh, worked at focused on companies, other focused on individuals. Tell us about one account that you worked on, one project that you worked on that really defined your career, defined you as a person, in a sense. Okay. Um, it will have to be the, the same company, right? So I've had the privilege of working some of the world's largest companies right now, Vice Media Group's right. the biggest digital media publishing in the world. Um, I was you know, the most senior growth lead at Ogilvy, which is the biggest advertising business in the world. Um, but I think the 
one experience that really stands out, and there are so many great experiences in terms of working with brands, but one that really stood out was one that actually defined me as an individual. And I realized for the first time I stood up for something I believed in was in my very first company, the one I was there for 10 years. Um, and I was, again, I was very junior. So this is probably about two years into my career. I had this amazing opportunity uh, to work on an account that took me to China quite a few times. And like, you know, here's a young guy who's, you know, just started his career two years in and has been flown to China a number of times. I was in Guangzhou in Beijing. Um, and I didn't think about the brand I was working with. And that was where my ignorance was. I was more thinking about, I was thinking more about the actual campaign and the inspiration for the campaign. It was a campaign called the inspirational campaign for the brand 555 that was owned by British American Tobacco. So at that stage in my life and my career, I didn't have any qualms, qualms about working with tobacco because I never thought about it. I remember thinking, oh, this is a great campaign. I want to work on this and it takes me to China. It's so interesting, etc. Um, and the, the, the pinnacle of the campaign was a trip to Beijing where I was working with uh, the second man on the moon that, that ever walked the moon, which is Buzz Aldrin. And it was a, a career defining moment, like sharing uh, the moment with Buzz Aldrin himself. Um, and actually, there's literally no one who's more out of this world than he is. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and actually, at the same campaign, I forgot, I also worked with the Oscar winning uh, composer, uh, Tan Dun. Tan Dun was the guy who wrote the score to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Hero, etc. And Tan Dun was, you know, won the Oscar for that. Um, and he was the other inspirational campaign figure that I worked with in Beijing. And if you imagine this, right, this is a young guy from Kuang. <laughs> like thrown into this moment to actually work with these people. And that just so inspired me, like, oh my God, I'm working with unbelievable people doing this in the early stage of my career. And it was amazing. Uh, and we delivered this amazing campaign. Again, never thinking that I'm working for a cigarette brand. I was more focused on, and the campaign was not about selling cigarettes. The campaign was about finding inspirational ideas and people who can help revolutionize China's burgeoning economy. So people who are involved in climate change, people who are involved in sustainability, people who are involved in urban all regeneration. So all the nice yeah. things, right? So all the nice things, but I kept forgetting that, but it's been powered and sponsored by a cigarette brand. And you know where tobacco money is, isn't necessarily all very ethical. Uh, but I was too young. I was ignorant about that aspect of it. Uh, and I was focused on just the campaign. So I did a great delivery of this campaign. And on the flight back from Beijing, because it was via Schiphol in Amsterdam, um, I was in Schiphol airport for my connecting flight. And I picked up a newspaper, which is a British newspaper called The Times. Uh, and front page of The Times was um, this war that at that point happening in Cambodia. Um, and it, the, the rebel group uh, was led by a 12-year-old boy. He may even be younger, maybe even 10. But remember, it was a ridiculously young kid, 10 or 12 years old, but he was the leader of the rebel force, right? So the rebel um, army. Um, and he was standing in this picture of, I think there was a the carcass of an animal or something like that, that he was standing on. He looked disheveled, covered in dirt, uh, and his grown-up adult rebel force behind him and he's standing there with a, with an m16 helmet in army fatigues um and a cigarette in his in his like in his lips and he's he's smoking um and it wasn't the brand i just worked on but I remember looking at this and thinking oh my god like what am i doing i just worked on a cigarette brand 
And this is what I see in a front page. And obviously it was a devastating story because it was a very devastating time for the country. And I remember thinking that somewhere in this cycle, tobacco money is funding local wars because that's how the cycle works. And, you know, just me and my immature brain just going, I can't be part of that, that cycle. I can't be part of that narrative and I can't be, even if my campaign had nothing to do with this, somewhere in that cycle, there is something not right about tobacco, tobacco business and what's happening in the world. Um, And so I came back very junior in my role and part of me was a little concerned that, okay, do I pull the plug or do I carry on? And I went to see my MD and I said, look, I love telling stories but I can't, I have to tell stories that are ethically right for me. Um, and that's when I said, I can't work on this account. I'll do anything else, but I just cannot work on this account. And I remember my MD, I think he was going to fire me. He looked at me and goes, incredible respect for you standing up for what you believed in. And I don't think any other junior person ever stood up for what they believed in. And that goes back to belief and discipline. And I held on to those two things. And and then that pivoted my career. I think that that's beautiful story and especially because of so many elements of the things that we spoke about kind of like accumulated this moment and I feel like like even earlier when we were speaking about kind of like that work ethic that comes a little bit from Asian culture delivering a good job giving your best I feel like there's sometimes another side of it where we we whatever it is we give our best and we, we don't really question in a sense we don't really stand up in a sense and we try not to see if there's anything wrong in the equation because we're very focused on giving our best making sure our job is the best which which is great it's just that there's the other side of it which we may not see the harm like that that comes a few steps behind like or many many steps in your case behind the work that we do and even if we do, or at least from from small stories that I've heard around, it's always that question of, will standing up for this affect my work? Or will standing up for this affect my career? And especially as being a minority, that fear is much more and much more real, I would say, um, especially for someone like you in a company where everyone else is, may not share the same minority uh, views as you. And I think that, that the, what you did was exemplary. What would you advise for everyone else in a similar situation who is struggling kind of like with that internal battle of not knowing, of having kind of like being programmed not to stand up for themselves, but having that 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 spark which, oh gosh, I have to do something. I mean, you speak a lot about these ethical issues and I and as much as you are exemplary, I've heard that not always like, do people trust PR agencies to, to represent accurately the ethical issues that are happening out there. So, yeah. What's your advice to those in the situation? And I think it's a follow-up question. What is the responsibility of these companies to tell these stories ethically? Okay, I'll answer the second question first because I personally believe that business, whatever the business is, are the greatest agents of change. And I'm stealing that quote from Mark Benioff, CEO of Salesforce, because I genuinely believe that. Um, Businesses provide a space, an environment, and a product or a service that really does drive change, and they are the communities of change. Um, But to the first question, um, it is, I I think, and again, uh, what I do a lot today, particularly having, you know, worked really hard to break the glass ceiling on so many things, uh, particularly in my career, I think it comes with the responsibility. Right. So this responsibility is about actually what I call braving uncomfortable conversations. Uh, and a lot of what I do in my 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 
both in my professional career and my personal advisory level is about talking about equality uh, and equality across the, the spectrums of race, gender, sexuality, ability, and age, right? And it's, it's a fast changing world. What I do think the younger generation actually has that gives them a lot of strength and power is the power of social media. What, when I grew up, we didn't have that. And I think, as I said before, in one of our older conversations is when somebody says they're going to call you at 7.30 at night, you stay at home because you had a landline and that was the moment the call, the phone was going to ring, right? Now you get contacted at any time, day or night. Um, you can literally, you know, search in one of your social channels and the multiple social channels at that as well. Uh, and you're keeping up with the speed of how fast culture is changing around the world, not just in your locale or vicinity, but anywhere in the world. You see things happening in real time. And then that gives incredible strength. But also because of that, because of social media, you get to see a lot of injustice. You get to see how things are happening. So you think about uh, George Floyd here in the US and how it gave rise to the Black Lives Matter movement. And my niece, who was part black, um, at the age of 17, led the Black Lives Matter protest in her hometown, right? So it gave her enough, enough credibility, but power, but also passion to do something about this because you're, it, it's visible. The, these, these inequalities are visible around the world. And I think it comes down to human spirit. You know, you have to ask yourself, are you the type of person who just sits back and lets things happen? Like, let it walk over you or you're the person that will brave that uncomfortable conversation and sometimes it's it's not it's not pleasant it's not a pleasant conversation to have um and and i think when i put my business hat on my corporate hat on i believe it's a responsibility because i want a a, a workforce that's diverse not because i want to tick quotas and want to have a box yes i've got black people i've got asian people i've got ethnic minorities or whatever i've got lgbtq etc it's not about that i want a, a diverse workforce that reflects the world that we live in because this is the world we live in and if i'm going to create advertising that's my nature of the business i work on right now if i'm creating advertising content i want advertising content that actually is relevant to who the world is um, and that needs that means people who need to work on this content need to have had lived experiences and you live those lived experiences is when people are being embraced and also allowed to live their true lives uh, the true authentic lives. so that for me is where i feel uh, the real change happens yeah, yeah. and to quote the company that you're currently with because branch add to the world that they want to be part of, not distract from them. And I feel like that is very, very powerful. And I really see that you live, you walk the talk in a sense. And I think that just hearing your story will probably inspire many others to do so. I so, hope so. I, I think so, definitely. Like personally, I feel like um knowing that that someone, that you are someone who like um from Pluang, that my family has, my family knows, like um a lot of us would have probably heard about you and things like that. And to see all that absolutely crazy, brilliant things that you've done, I think it, it kind of opens up my mind in a sense. And I think to kind of like wind down and wrap up our interview, if you were to meet someone from a small town like Pluang, who was how you were, or if you were to travel back in time and meet you from the past or someone akin to that, who probably would paint and die if they heard all of the amazing things that you did. What would you what would you say to them for someone in that position? Wow. Powerful question. Never been asked that. Um, 
I, I think my, my response would be nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. And if you hold on to, again, I go back to belief, self-belief and discipline. Your path may not be linear. You know, it's not going to be just point A to point B because that's how everybody thinks life works. Your journey could be an amalgamation of different stepping stones that takes you in different directions. But if you have a vision and, and, a, and, a, and a dream, nothing is actually really impossible. And it's about believing in yourself and having the self-discipline to get you to the various stepping stones along the way and being open to embracing what those stepping stones are. Never always imagine that's the end game. Right. Like, you know, I, as I said, when we started this conversation, did I ever think that this is where I'd end up today? Zero. I remember all I literally no, no qualms, no, 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 not an inkling of a thought that I'd even leave Kluang, let alone leave Kluang and go to KL and KL to London, London to to New York. Right. It is like never once thought about that. All I remember, all I remember thinking about myself is I feel much bigger than who I am. And I need to follow that instinct. Uh, and, and I did. I followed my instincts. And I followed my instincts. And I don't think instincts ever prove you wrong or steer you wrong. Uh, I just trusted in believing in myself and doing the best that I could, demonstrating my self-worth and being disciplined about that. So, yes, I loved music, but I also knew the importance of studying and getting my the, the correct you know education and I was disciplined about that. I didn't just know oh, I wanted to do music, so I'm just going to faff about my education and get a really bad grade. I went, no, I know the importance. It's not because my parents put that fear factor in me. It's like I know the importance of a good education. That was my upbringing. So I had a plan. As I said before, if nothing is ever guaranteed, but my plan was either it's going to be music or it's going to be a corporate career. Okay, music wasn't it. I made that pull. I could have carried on. I pulled that and said, I'm going to focus on this because I can do well here. Um, and that's what I wanted. So I focused on that. Um, I would say, you know, there are no limits to that to that young Suresh. If I were to go back and meet him, like, there is no limitation to what you can do. You And, you know, you just have to embrace the journey ahead. Don't be afraid of that journey. And that, And as I said, the journey is not linear. It can be in so many different ways. Absolutely beautiful. And I have not yet, I'm sorry to disappoint you, I have not yet invented a time machine. But as someone, <laughs> but, but as someone probably on the other side of the journey of life, I think that it means a lot to me and I think it means a lot to all the listeners today. So thank you so much for being on no, the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, you, you've been a joy to talk to and an honor to interview in a sense. And I just hope you had as much fun as I did speaking. So to you. much fun. So much fun. And with that, I very sadly draw our episode of Changing Reality today to a close to our audience. Um, I'm so sorry, I just completely ignored you this whole episode. But if you were talking to Suresh too, I'm sure you were as equally enraptured in his stories and his journey and his lessons as I was. And thank you guys so much for watching this episode. If you guys have any questions, drop it in the chat below and we'll take them another time. And as well as the same time, um, if you guys like today's episode, do join us again next week. We're on every Thursday at 10 p.m. ET and wherever that is around the world for you guys. So thank you for tuning in. Until next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only
only on WQHS Radio.